0: Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hustle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osborne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. and join me in Disgraceland available right now wherever you get your podcasts rock you're listening to Badlands to hear all episodes of Badlands right now go listen on Amazon Music or say Alexa play the Badlands podcast this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners please check the show notes for more information Badlands is a production of Double Elvis I tell you boys those women old days. Uh, you bet they were. You know, we didn't half appreciate the good old times we had. Indeed we didn't. Say, Bill, uh, do you remember how you used to imitate all the animals on the farm? Sure, I do. Can you do it yet? Well, uh... <laughs> The stories about Charlie Sheen are insane. He drank, drugged, and fucked his way out of unprecedented commercial success, not once, but multiple times. Speaking of multiple times, not one, but two of his Mercedes were found crashed into a ravine off Mulholland Drive on separate occasions. He took a porn star to a dinner with his ex-wife. He didn't think twice about writing checks for $30,000 for one night stands. When his increasingly volatile actions got him fired from the highest paid role on television, he celebrated by climbing to the top of a building in Beverly Hills waving a machete in the air, and drinking from a bottle of red liquid labeled Tiger Blood. Yet despite a personal life that has been off the rails more often than it stayed on the track, Charlie Sheen made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Premier Quartet, performing Farmyard Medley in 1918. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Jonathan Liebman's Battle Los Angeles. And why would I play you that specific slice of alien invasion cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on March 10th, 2011. And that was the day that Charlie Sheen's Sherman Oaks Mansion was raided by the LAPD. After years of debauched and unstable behavior made him a perceived danger to others, or to himself. On this episode, not one, but two crashed Mercedes, porn stars, one night stands, Tiger Blood, and Charlie Sheen. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season five, Hollywoodland. Mulholland Drive is one of the most distinctive addresses in America. The 21-mile two-lane road winds and weaves its way across the hills high above Los Angeles. From Mulholland, you can gaze down on LA, twinkling in the darkness like a dream. Hollywood history blows in on a warm desert breeze, and the vibe is mythic. The views are breathtaking. But the views aren't the only thing that takes your breath away. The curves on the road are dramatic They angle sharply to the left and then quickly snake to the right. Million-dollar bungalows nested in the vegetation pass by like a blur. Driving on Mulholland can be a white-knuckled ride of anxiety for some, but for others, it's easy to get swept up in the thrill, the danger, and that make-believe feeling. On Mulholland Drive, you're invincible. The driver of the silver Mercedes certainly thought so. The car hugged the oncoming curve tight, and the tires chewed up a strip of grass on the edge of the pavement before regaining balance and returning to the road. The engine rumbled as the driver downshifted. Headlights illuminated a straightaway just up ahead. Left foot on the clutch, shift up a gear, right foot down hard on the gas. The Mercedes opened up. It passed the narrow's overlook. It was late, pitch black. No time for scenic pit stops. The next curve approached fast in the distance, real sharp. The driver gunned it and leaned in hard. The Mercedes kissed the edge of the road again, but this time it didn't come back to the pavement. The driver spun the wheel to the right, and the car went left. The brakes squealed, but the car kept moving forward. Gravel and dust kicked up in its wake, illuminated by the red glow of the brake lights. And then the car left the road. The drop was sudden, and the Mercedes' nose crashed violently into a shallow ravine. Around 2.30 in the morning, a passerby spotted the Mercedes off the road. No driver or passengers to be found. The Good Samaritan called the cops. LAPD came and ran the plates, and the Mercedes was registered to one Carlos Irwin Estevez, AKA Charlie Sheen. It was 2010. These days, Charlie Sheen's reputation was more about his wild and erratic behavior than his acting resume. Gone were the days when he commanded lead roles in major studio films such as Platoon, Wall Street, Major League, and Young Guns, the star-studded Brat Pack Western that saw him acting alongside his brother, Emilio Estevez. He was no longer courted by major Hollywood directors like Oliver Stone or indie auteurs like John Sayles. But even though his long-running role on the CBS sitcom Two and a Half Men may have been a creative demotion of sorts, it sure paid well, real well. Highest paid actor working on television well. Who needs Oliver Stone when your day job allows you to afford a $7.2 million Mediterranean style mansion in Sherman Oaks? It was that mansion that the LAPD visited later in the morning of June 15th, 2010. They woke Charlie up. He was shocked to hear that his Mercedes had been found in a ravine off Mulholland Drive. Perhaps just as shocked as the cops were to hear that he wasn't the one behind the wheel. His alibi was airtight, but there was something else. Something was off. Both Charlie and LA's finest were experiencing a moment of profound deja vu, like they had all been here before, standing in the doorway of a multi-million-dollar mansion talking about a stolen car, because they had. Because just four months earlier, in February, another of Charlie's Mercedes was stolen from his garage, driven up to the Hollywood Hills, and crashed into a ravine off Mulholland Drive. The similarities between the two events were uncanny. And the Hollywood explanation would be that someone had it out for Charlie, that he was a target. And maybe someone was trying to send the message. The real world explanation was that Charlie simply had a habit of leaving his keys in the ignition in the garage door open. And it's not like he didn't have other cars. At least they hadn't taken the Mobbox 62S. His 400,000 custom-built luxury Mercedes-Benz, jet black, strengthened windows, ballistic composite door panels, he felt safe inside it. Windows up, doors locked, nothing could get you, not even a bullet. They could take his cars, but they'd never get to him. He wouldn't let them. He wouldn't give up the mental real estate in his head. Besides, Charlie Sheen had a lot more to worry about than a car in a ditch. Jail beds are a lot like rehab beds, depending on where you can afford to go. They're uncomfortable and you never really get used to them and you often wake up in one with little to no knowledge about what happened the night before. But despite all the booze and blow and whatever else he'd consumed over the course of his 40 odd years on planet Earth, enough to offer both plausible deniability and a convenient Fifth Amendment answer to any and all legal questions, Charlie Sheen knew why he was here, in a jail cell in Aspen watching the sunlight leak through a small frosted window, and there was snow on the ground outside. It was December, 2009, Christmas. A time to spread goodwill and cheer. But Charlie got festive by getting into it with his wife, again, and this time it was more than just words. This time, Charlie had a knife. At least that's what Brooke said when the cops showed up. Brooke was his third wife. Heidi Fleiss' bullshit wrecked his first marriage. Hollywood madam his ass. No real madam would get caught that easily. For a minute, he thought his second marriage to actress Denise Richards would actually work out. They started a family. It even looked like a repeat stint in rehab might stick. His father, Ramon Antonio Gerardo Estevez, AKA Martin Sheen, his hero gave up drinking after the stress of making Apocalypse Now and nearly killed him. He made the choice to live, the righteous choice, and he was a righteous man two shiny coins under his belt to represent two shiny decades with the good folks at AA. But Charlie didn't have the patience or the self-control of the man he idolized. Sometimes lack of self-control was a good thing, like when he left a $500 tip on a $42 restaurant bill, It also made him a good friend. He once rented out the Houston Astrodome just so his pals could have batting practice, and he routinely broke out his checkbook if he needed any sort of help at all but his checkbook wasn't exclusively reserved for the noble stuff. Charlie had a thing for girls. No one could deny that. Paying for sex was easy. In terms of the agreement and all, you knew where you stood at all times. You had your choice of women. Each of them ripped from the pages of the magazines you hid between the mattress and the box spring when it came time to clean your room for Mother's Day. Pick a porn star. There's a good chance she spent some time with Charlie up in the hills, snorting Coke and drinking bourbon to the sounds of Vin Scully calling the Dodgers. Charlie wasn't just wild thing in the movies. He was a wild thing in real life, minus the haircut and the Buddy Holly Wayfarers. Denise Richards stumbled onto all of this way too soon after they got hitched. She filed for a divorce a few years later. And so third time's the charm, or at least that's how Charlie felt about Brooke Muller. An actress whose career never took off the way she hoped it would. A rich girl with enough money to bankroll her own 13 stints in rehab clinics. And maybe they understood one another, having gone through some of the same shit. Charlie was a homebody and Brooke was a social butterfly. Opposites don't attract, they repel. They put stress on each other. Throw in the added stress of a first pregnancy and pretty soon Charlie was using again. The stress compounded, they argued. And on Christmas Eve 2009 in Aspen, they were shouting. Their voices got louder and louder. And then, according to police documents, Charlie straddled Brooke on a bed. He pulled out a knife and brought it to her throat. He held it there and said, you better be in fear. If you tell anybody, I'll kill you. I have ex-police I can hire who know how to get the job done and they won't leave a trace. She broke away and called the cops and Charlie Sheen was dragged out of the house like an unwanted lump of coal from a kid's stocking. He vehemently denied the allegations. And now here he was, Staring at the off-white ceiling of a cell with those fucking lights that never quite turn off. Wondering if the four counts, and including felony menacing, would stick. But maybe he could just make up with Brooke. Either way, there'd be no escaping rehab this time around. But what about prison? Imagine, the world-famous star of two and a half men, shitting into a lidless toilet behind bars, pouring jelly on his ramen noodles pumping iron behind bars with the rest of the boys in orange jumpsuits. It was almost enough to make him smile. Almost. Chuck Lorre felt a familiar anger boiling inside of him as he pulled his car into the Warner Brothers studio lot in Burbank. His temper was legendary. Just as legendary as the shows he wrote, produced, and directed. Sitcoms beloved by millions of viewers every week. Put me in paradise and I'll focus on the one thing that makes me angry, he once said. And he meant to. He turned the engine off but didn't get out right away. He just sat there had to collect his thoughts before dealing with Carlos. Took his thoughts a minute to collect. First, they drifted, as they sometimes did, to the small house he grew up in on Long Island. His father's failed ambitions. His dad just wanted to cook. He could never get the business or the food quite right at his mediocre luncheonette in Plainview. Chuck's mother resented his father for it. Chuck could almost hear that gravelly voice of hers telling him he'd always be no good because he was a Levine. Chuck showed her. Changed his name five times as he drifted in and out like an apparition. He told people that he didn't grow up until the age of 47, spending the better part of two decades after dropping out of college fueled by chemical compounds with three-letter acronyms like ABV, THC, and LSD. Two months had passed since he last saw Carlos. He liked calling Charlie Sheen by that name. After all, Carlos was his given name. It got a rise out of him. Chuck had a decent relationship with the star, but... He'd never be able to call them friends. Perhaps familiarity did breed contempt. He'd been through a lot of what Charlie had, fired from the writer's room on shows like Roseanne and Sybil because of his boorish and lousy behavior. It was a miracle that he'd even been able to make Dharma and Greg, which proved to be his salvation. the faith of his youth, his given Hebrew name was Chaim, after all, and Zen Buddhism, a central plot point and theme of the show, merged well together He became a friend of Bill soon after. AA, and at least according to Charlie's co-star, John Cryer, a colonoscopy proved to be the thing that would finally get Chuck Lorre over the top and on the right path. From then on, Chuck Lorre became a hitmaker. Two and a Half Men was a grand fucking slam. Chuck was no longer known as Levine, even if he felt like one all the goddamn time, but in order to get the show's premise over the top, he needed a believable and charismatic Hellraiser and and Charlie Sheen, he'd certainly found one. Charlie would definitely be there today. It was his first day on the call sheet after the Aspen incident. Chuck was dreading it. He never wanted Charlie for the 25 men role in the first place, but someone talked him into it. He couldn't remember who, but he wished he could. He put their head on a fucking pike. Chuck and Charlie met during one of the actor's many recovery phases. From the first few minutes, things were awkward. Chuck's dog had recently died, and He was moody and irritable in a way that he himself didn't particularly care for. Charlie was his usual deadpan self, but he reacted poorly to the vibe in the room. Television was an unexpected second act for Charlie Sheen. His role on Michael J. Fox's sitcom, Spin City, saved his bacon career-wise, right after he nearly died, mainlining blow through a syringe. that's what happens when your nose stops working, he said, but he hated working with kids. Ever since he made that movie, Lucas, with one of the Corys back in 86. Worse, Chuck didn't have a script for him at first. When some pages finally came through, two weeks later, Charlie feigned some non-committal bullshit, but Chuck knew he'd sign on. Alimony for two, eventually three, ex-wives, child support, escort fees, drugs, gambling debts. They didn't magically pay for themselves. So Chuck and Charlie had to make magic together. And they did. They even held AA meetings before each shoot, at least until Charlie fell off the wagon. He even wrote the preambles. Chuck finally got out of his car and walked onto the soundstage. Charlie was on time, which wasn't a surprise given that he'd been nothing but professional and stable when it came to shoots. Charlie's presence lit up a room. He knew everyone's name, no matter how low on the production totem pole. He hit up PAs to talk baseball between takes. It was no surprise that he even had a well-played witticism chambered and ready to fire with that God-given Estevez understatement behind it. Well, he said, some people have heard that I went to Aspen for Christmas. Everyone laughed, everyone except Chuck. He cornered Charlie alone as they were setting up, praying that they were far enough away from the crew that they couldn't hear them. Chuck didn't need any more fucking grips running to the Inquirer with some new bit of gossip. Sure, that self-deprecating shit was funny, but... Charlie would have to deliver a real apology to the cast and crew soon. They lost weeks of pay while he was in rehab, and a little contrition would go a long way. And Charlie blew up at the mere mention of it. This whole fucking crew wouldn't even be working if it wasn't for him, and they could all go fuck themselves. Chuck recited the pledge in his head. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. He'd known for a while that he'd never be able to change Charlie Sheen, but now it hit him like a ton of bricks. He didn't want to. We'll be right back after this. Word, word, word. It's not every day that the heads of CBS Television and the Warner Brothers Television Group make house calls, but when the man you've invested a hundred million dollars in goes off the deep end. You make the effort. January, 2011. Les Moonves and Bruce Rosenblum found Charlie Shee not actually in the deep end of his pool, but rather lounging near it. Everyone back on the set of Two and a Half Men assumed he was dying. Just look at him, gaunt and sickly. No more false caps over his jagged and crowned teeth. He could barely stand up. Couldn't hit his marks when the camera started rolling. Just seeing him like this, his ghastly white skin frying under a hot California sun justified what Moonves and Rosenblum were there to do. They opened an attaché case, pulled out two documents. The first stated that the production of two and a half men had been halted immediately. The second demanded that Charlie Sheen go back to rehab. There wasn't one singular moment you could point to as the moment when it became painfully obvious that Charlie's previous attempt at rehab had failed. It was the night in New York City in the fall of 2010 at an Upper East Side French restaurant called Daniel. Michelin rated, jacket required. Maybe not the best idea to invite your ex-wife and an aspiring adult film star to dinner together, but Charlie Sheen did what he wanted. Even if that meant doing lines of cocaine in the bathroom of Forbes' top-rated restaurant in America with a porn actress named Capri Anderson while your ex-wife, Denise Richards, was kept company back at the table by a nearly $6,000 bottle of Chateau Latour. But he didn't just want to do blow in the john. He wanted something else. He wanted to fuck. Capri stopped him before he got his pants off. And that was gonna set him back the cost of two of those bottles of wine. Jesus. He stuck the blow in the bathroom, even if he did wind up doing it alone. Later that night, he wasn't alone in his suite at the Plaza Hotel. Guests in nearby rooms heard noises coming from inside Charlie's room. Primal screams, splintering wood and breaking glass. And then the sounds of the NYPD banging on the door, and Charlie denied any wrongdoing. But the room told a different story. Smashed furniture, overturned tables, and there was Capri Anderson, fearing for her life, locked in the suite's bathroom. She said Charlie threatened to kill her. All over a stupid watch, a Philip Patek. The fucking didn't cost as much as a starter home. He couldn't find it. He accused her of stealing it. The cops gave Charlie a choice. The psych ward or jail. He chose the rubber room. A few days later, he got a call an offer for a one-time payment of $250,000 to make the story disappear before it started getting major traction in the media. Fuck that. He wanted his goddamn watch back. Capri Anderson, meanwhile, went on all the nightly news programs and told her story to the world. And then there was that night in January of 2011 when Casey Jordan, a porn industry veteran, paid Charlie a visit at his house. Charlie Sheen was the highest paid actor working on television. Jordan wasn't worried in the least that the $30,000 check Charlie wrote her for their passionate night would bounce. His latest contract renewal for two and a half men was upwards of $100 million. The next morning, Charlie's stomach ached. It felt like he was getting stabbed over and over. And he feared the worst. Perhaps the bill had finally come due. Perhaps it was time to give a single fuck. Friends called an ambulance. He was rushed to the hospital. The Sheen family assembled including the patriarch, Martin, Charlie's hero, who once again asked his son to get help. But Charlie wasn't going anywhere. He didn't want to. Turned out his pain was just a hernia. He dodged the bullet again. But he couldn't dodge Casey Jordan, who teamed up with her agent, Kevin Blatt, AKA K. Bizzle, the self-dubbed Horror Whisperer, to force a would-be corporate takeover of Charlie's life. Bizzle was determined to get Jordan as much cash as he could out of her experience. She told wild tales to TMZ of Charlie's retirement dreams. A 27-room mansion, staffed to the gills with porn stars, goddesses willing to service his every need. And in return, he'd provide them all with all they ever needed. And the media ate it up. Once again, Charlie was everywhere in the news, and for all the wrong reasons. Chuck Lorre was infuriated. Much more even-keeled were Les Moonvez and Bruce Rosenblum were now negotiating poolside the terms of Charlie's next rehab stay. The Warner Brothers jet was standing by, ready to take Charlie to the facility of his choice. They wanted him to go for at least six weeks. Charlie balked. Six weeks was a long time. Maybe four would be better, or maybe two. He also wouldn't leave the crew in the lurch. The only way he'd do it was if Les and Bruce promised to pay the crew while he was away. The men gave Charlie their word, and then they gave him peace and quiet. Two weeks later, Chuck Lorre found out that Charlie wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. He was still at home. This was bullshit. It was all lip service. Charlie had no desire to get better. And why would he? Every time he did something outrageous, something reckless, something that had negative ramifications on other human beings, his stock still went up. Two and a half men's ratings soared, but Chuck needed to get Charlie's attention. And so Chuck sent them a message at the end of an episode of Two and a Half Men. Chuck Lorre is known for his end title, Vanity Cards. For most TV producers, the Vanity Card is the logo of their production company that flashes by quickly at the end of an episode. But for Chuck Lorre, his Vanity Cards are more personal. Each one is different, and each one contains a written message, essay, or joke. You gotta hit pause on the remote at the right time in order to read it all. Chuck knew Charlie would hit pause on this vanity card. The one that read, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I don't have crazy reckless sex with strangers. If Charlie Sheen outlives me, I'm going to be really pissed. If Chuck Lorre wanted a war, well, Charlie Sheen was going to bring it to him. Charlie Sheen wasn't about to take it lying down. In fact, he wasn't going to take it at all. Who the fuck did Chuck Lorre think he was? He obviously didn't know who Charlie Sheen was, and it was about time he found out. In fact, it was about damn time that the whole world found out. In February of 2011, still stinging over Chuck's vanity card stunt, Charlie Sheen called in to Alex Jones' syndicated radio show. At the time, Alex Jones had yet to reveal himself as the person we know him as today. He was still a seemingly harmless conspiracy nut who was part of the eclectic landscape born from the Keep Austin Weird motto. But Alex Jones gave Charlie a venue to express himself more freely than he could on some celebrity news program. Charlie didn't hold back. He made bizarre claims about the Pope, and he referred to himself as a high priest, Vatican assassin warlock. He threatened violence against anyone who chose to infiltrate and hurt his family. He flat out rejected Alcoholics Anonymous in defiance of his father, called them sissies, a bootleg cult. I have a disease, he asked defiantly. Bullshit, I cured it with my brain, with my mind. But Charlie Sheen saved his harshest words for Chuck Lorre. I didn't care for that vanity card, Charlie said. I'm tired of being told you can't talk about that. Bullshit. There's something this side of deplorable that a certain Hyam Levine, yes, that's Chuck's real name, mistook this rock star for his own selfish exit strategy, bro. Check it, Alex. I embarrassed him in front of his children in the world by healing at a pace that his unevolved mind cannot process. Last I checked, Hyam, I spent close to the last decade effortlessly and magically converting your tin cans into pure gold. And the gratitude I get is that this charlatan chose not to do his job, which is to write. Clearly, someone who believes he's above the law. The full Charlie Sheen experience and all of its sublime mania had arrived. He offended half the nation with his insane rhetoric and himself to the other half by embarrassing the fuck out of his boss. The suits at CBS and Warner's thought he was having a psychotic episode. Chuck Lorre suspected something darker, that perhaps this Charlie had always lurked within his star. Emerging like the Incredible Hulk when things didn't go his way when consequences finally seemed to be around the corner. Chuck and the CBS Corporate Brain Trust endured a month of Charlie's bullshit. In March of 2011, it was decided. Charlie Sheen was out. But Charlie Sheen wasn't down. He bypassed traditional news media, the networks that were hell-bent on misrepresenting what he said and making him look crazy. He took his word to the masses as a virtual pioneer with his own live stream. He called out Les Movez and Bruce Rosenblum. He brought out the claws for Chuck Lorre. Hiya, Chuckie Cheeseball, he sneered. Can you smell your soul? Can you smell this rotting dog shit the fermented puke that is your viscera? Can you smell the lies? Can you smell the carnage you've created? If sad and stupid had a foul odor attached, it would be you. Charlie Sheen's live streams racked up one million unique views. His new Twitter handle, at Charlie Sheen, attracted more than 3 million followers. But the spectacle wasn't relegated to the World Wide Web alone. Charlie Sheen climbed to the rooftop of Live Nation's headquarters in Beverly Hills with a machete in one hand and a bottle labeled Tiger Blood in the other. He waved the machete, took a few swigs of the red liquid, and shouted, free at last. Word on the street was that Charlie Sheen had lost it. Word was that Charlie Sheen had gone 5150. Word was, just days after Charlie Sheen had lost the most lucrative role on national television, he was gonna get another visit from the LAPD at his Sherman Oaks mansion. And this time, it wouldn't be about another totaled Mercedes. March 10th, 2011, 7.30 p.m. Charlie Sheen was eating dinner in his backyard when he heard the helicopters. They fluttered above like inconspicuous warning signs. Seconds later, the LAPD came through the front door. Charlie didn't panic. He didn't get up or look alarmed. He knew they weren't there to put him in an involuntary psychiatric hold like everyone in Hollywood suspected. And he knew they weren't going to find whatever it was they were looking for. Go ahead, look. For nearly three hours, the LAPD combed through Charlie Sheen's house. They were looking for firearms which would mean a violation of the temporary restraining order obtained by his ex-wife, Brooke Muller. But all they found was an antique gun and a few bullets, far from the smoking gun they had hoped to uncover. Charlie emerged victorious. He was in a celebratory mood. He was going to take his show on the road, on tour. He was going to commune with his adoring public. They didn't call him Machine and being John Malkovich for nothing. And he'd be bringing that truth machine to a theater near you your little vanity cards, Chuck, because Charlie was going to really give it to the people, unleashed and honest. No snark, no coyness, no network standards and practices getting in his way. But by the time he found himself booed off stage by pissed off audiences who paid decent money to see Charlie Sheen rant and rave, only to realize that he was, in fact, a man in some sort of crisis, Charlie's victory seemed increasingly empiric. Some opportunities found their way to him, like an FX sitcom based on Adam Sandler's Anger Management movie and a lead role in a 24's Roman Coppola film A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III. What he was left with, ultimately, was the same burned-out husk of a life that he had in the years before Chuck Laurie came along and pushed him towards some measure of salvation. And maybe the push wasn't hard enough. A decade earlier, back before his 25 men renaissance, Charlie told Playboy magazine that he went, quote, from making multi-million dollar deals on movies and fucking playmates to being unemployable and fucking a five-months-pregnant Mexican whore with cesarean scars in a bar in Nogales, unquote. For everything, there is a season. And it looked like winter might never end this time around. Even worse was when he flipped on CBS and saw Chuck's name again. The Big Bang Theory was so successful that it spawned spin-offs and the cast fights for larger paychecks were regularly in the news. Oh, the luxuries of a steady TV gig. The kind where you got paid more for one episode than most Americans made in a year. And though Charlie Sheen wasn't exactly poor, his lifestyle did catch up with him. The partying, the recklessness, the drugs, the women. It all caught up to him in a single three-letter diagnosis, which he revealed to the world in 2015. In an interview with Matt Lauer on the Today Show, Charlie Sheen announced that he'd been living with HIV for the last four years. Charlie appeared sober, coherent, and reflective as he delivered the news. He referred to the diagnosis as a turning point in his life. He admitted that his desire to tell the world was twofold. On the one hand, he had told some of the wrong people about his illness, people who used the secret as leverage in ongoing extortions. But his confession wasn't entirely self-serving. I have a responsibility now to better myself and to help a lot of other people, he said. Hopefully others may come forward and say, thanks, Charlie, for kicking that door open. If you're looking to Charlie Sheen for help and guidance, well, that's just one of those ridiculous plot twists that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts, because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.